Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Nia? Nia, can you please come here and sit down at my desk? What is it, Miss Wolf? I'm going over your homework, especially this essay about Alexander Hamilton. Did I do okay? I worked really hard on it. The question isn't, did you do okay, or did you work hard on it? The question is, did you file the appropriate paperwork? I have told you, and I've told you, that these essays have to be accompanied by the pink and orange copies of the TPS-133 forms, which go to the Federal Department of Initiative Special Initiative on history initiatives, and then you're supposed to produce blue and green copies of Form 44-H. That's a state instrument to comply with the core curriculum program, leveraging success through knowledge narratives. I'm sorry. I, um, I just don't know what any of those things mean, Miss Wolf. And that is why you'll never amount to anything in today's education system. You'll be left behind when the rapture of learning comes. You'll be lying on the dirty floor of some flophouse, diseased and scabby, and you know who will be lying there next to you? Who, Miss Wolf? Me! The teacher you dragged down with you, you miserable little enemy of the people! Couldn't we just concentrate on learning about American history and not worry about all these programs and regulations? (laughs) I'll say this for you, Nico. Nia. Whatever. You may have a future as a comedian after you drop out of school. So get ready for a conversation featuring some other crazy dreamers without a clue of what it's like here in the trenches. And now, in the No Child Left Behind school pageant, he played the role of behind Colin McEnroe. So what is this? This is a conversation we we recorded October 1st at Watkinson School. We wanted to have a conversation about teaching and learning. There are a lot of conversations happening across the country right now about education policy at both the state and national level. But somehow or other, those conversations don't seem to correspond all that closely to what really happens in the classroom. So we got a very interesting group of people together on the stage at Watkinson and tried to focus as much as possible on what teachers and students really do together. Uh, Let me tell you who's up on stage right now. I'm very excited about these people, too. So to my immediate right is uh, Jamie Alessandrine. Alessandrine, really. i got to get the accent in the right place. Alessandrine. She's an English teacher at uh, Haddam Killingworth High School. She's worked in a lot of other places, too. Very important to me. She taught at Warren Harding School in Bridgeport. She's our classroom teacher. She's the person whose tiredness I'm trying to catch up with right now. I guess I don't really have to introduce Terry Schrader. You just met her, but she's the head of school here at Watkinson, the new head of school. We're so excited to be kicking off a new season here with her on the panel. She's also a founding member of the School Reform Initiative. And then um, the guy who came the longest distance, anyway, Ron Wolk. And we're really, he's a great get for us. He's a former chairman and now a board member of Big Picture Learning, and he's the founding editor of uh, Education Week and Teacher Magazine. So uh, he's like a big name in the world of education. We're very lucky to get Ron to to make the trip here. And uh, lastly, but certainly not leastly, I know he's a great teacher, 
because he taught my son, and my son at that time was very difficult to motivate, and my son still talks about him as like you know, maybe the one guy who really broke through during his high school years. He also taught my much more easy to motivate niece, and he is a legendarily great teacher. He's also now the superintendent of schools of West Hartford, but I found out tonight he's still, like, once a week you still teach a class? Yeah, I go in once a week. Superintendent of school still goes in once a week, finds some class, descends on these helpless kids and teaches them. So, uh, Tom Moore. Um, so this is a great panel. I'm not going to talk to you much tonight, but I'm going to quickly tell you a story at the beginning, because it's going to come back, I think. Uh, part of this will come back. So about three weeks ago, I had this daunting assignment to interview in front of a live audience and for a live radio show, Sir Tom Stoppard, the great playwright. Well, I mean, really, you know, in the English language, there's maybe three or four people comparably intimidating. You know, I don't know, Harold Bloom. I mean, who else could you interview that would be as scary as Sir Tom Stoppard? And so I was very nervous about this and really eager to be well-prepared, and I was reading everything I could get my hands on, and we're driving around in Maine listening to radio plays, and I, you know, and so I started to develop this outline, not unlike the one I have here tonight, and I had it on this iPad of all these questions that I was going to ask and all these areas I was going to get into. And we get down to New Haven to do the show, and I turn on this thing, and the outline won't load. And I got all these questions, all these brilliant questions I thought of, and the outline won't load. And I start to get kind of frantic. And meanwhile, my wonderful staff, they're running around trying to solve this problem, and we're in the lobby of a hotel, the study in New Haven, and they're trying to help me solve this problem, and the computer in the lobby isn't available. So they, they bring me over to the desk where they check people in, and they say, use this computer and see if you can get it. So the first view that Sir Tom Stoppard has of me, the person who's going to interview him, is I'm standing there like an idiot, you know, saying, you know, how long, how many nights will you be staying with us? Um, and, and meanwhile, everybody's running around trying to get this outline, and I'm calling home, and, you know, can you do, I don't, I'm doing anything. So at some point, like two seconds before we go on the air, somebody got it, or maybe everybody got it at once, and people are handing it to me and handing me iPads. And I was so annoyed by myself by then that I just thought, I'm not going to look at this. <laughs> I refused to look at it. And so I learned a couple of things, which was that, first of all, I had badly squandered the period of time when I should have been bonding with Sir Tom Stoppard and making the human connection that was incredibly important. Instead, I was being a slave to this concept that I had. And also, I had that sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi moment where, you know, he says to Luke, turn off the computer, use the force. <laughs> and I realized I, I sort of already knew everything I needed to know. I didn't really need this. It made me think a lot about the models that we get committed to. And because the job I have is a little bit like I'm in a classroom every day. I'm trying to learn about stuff and well enough to, to, to facilitate here anyway. And I just realized my own model for this was all wrong, you know. And then I somehow or other, I had actually ceased to be a collaborator even with myself. You know, all I wanted was this stupid thing here, you know, that was that I had sort of formatted everything into. And in fact, the conversation, once we got over Tom Stoppard's discomfiture at me as a uh, check-in clerk, uh, the conversation went very well and much better because I didn't do this. And I think that's sort of part of the lesson here, you know? It's, I think it, it sort of fits into some of the things we'll be talking about tonight, which is that sometimes you've got to sort of let yourself or let a teacher do what the teacher can really do. Uh, and we have so many things we put in the way of that. So... Um, Without further ado, I'm just going to begin by reminding everybody that nationwide, 3.7 million school teachers serve grades K through 12. And 
one of the things that I saw in the research that I read, more than any other variable in education, more than any school or curriculum, teachers matter. People get pretty fussed up about what school their kid is at, but the school, statistically speaking, doesn't matter as much as which teacher stands in front of the class in that school. Teacher quality tends to vary more within schools, even supposedly great schools, than from school to school. So everything that I read suggests to me that the most important variable is the teacher, is how good the teacher is, how able the teacher is to do what he or she does well. I mean, does anybody disagree with that? Does there, anybody think there is? Would anybody gainsay that? I absolutely agree with the importance of the teacher. The external variable of the family and education level and poverty. I'll be honest, being in public education for 20 years, I'm beginning to get tired of being blamed for poverty. Because I think that that is the issue mm. that if policymakers attack that, then a lot of our jobs have become much easier. But even in the, the research that I saw, anyway, it seemed as though within even poverty situations, yeah, teachers can make these, diff these huge differences. Well, Tom, I am going to begin with you. Well, one of the things you did this year, you said to your teachers in West Hartford that your only initiative this year is the group of faces looking back at you. What, what, did that, what did you mean? What did you mean when you said that? I spent years as a teacher in the teacher's lounge, and I know what we complain about. <laughs> the, you know, the initiatives that come forward, be they from federal government, be they from state government, or be they from pressures of the local board or the principals. And I know that morale is an issue in teaching right now. And there's this mindset that, boy, there's so much pressure on teachers now. And that's on us that we feel that way. I'm sorry, there's a lot of white noise, but teaching's always been really hard. Mm -hmm. If our focus is on paperwork, is driving us out of the profession, mm -hmm. we gotta recenter. Our focus should be kids are suicidal because they're questioning their gender identity. A kid just lost their grandmother, which was their one touchstone to stability. A parent was just arrested. That's why I'm staying awake at night. If mm. you're staying awake at night because of paperwork, recenter. The paperwork will take care of itself. Worry about kids. Well, uh, yeah, you're clapping, but Jamie, but as a skeptical teacher, too, so he comes in there and he says that, and it sounds pretty good, but what would you want to know? What would you want to know from, what kind of, what do you want Tom to really promise you to make that notion of teaching students as the only initiative that you have to worry about what would you want to know from Tom to make that the case? I'll be honest. My first impulse, of course, would be, okay, so please remember you said that in August. Mm -hmm. And we were all swept up in the current of unbelievable excitement when the school year starts. Yeah. But I just, I actually found myself, while you were talking, I just kept making a rectangle on my knee in the classroom. That's mm. what matters. It matters Absolutely. who walks in my door every day and who walks in my colleagues' doors at my school, in my town, in my profession. Who walks in our doors? And I guess for you, who walks in the school doors? Yep. So who walks in my classroom door matters. And I remember figuratively last week, but more specifically last year, it's only October 1st, right? Actually standing up sometimes in some meetings and just thinking, I, I have to get out of here. I can't be here anymore. And I don't think it's my shortcoming. And I, I need to be out of this room. I need, or at the very least, I need to not be sitting anymore. Yeah. I actually, actually, last week, I needed to stand at a meeting. I just can't sit. I need to just 
get down to what I'm going to be teaching my students. And I need to also, that particular meeting where I needed to stand, I need to collaborate with my trusted colleagues mm -hmm. because we're doing things for kids. So uh, let me just, I, I want to focus you on that classroom for a second now because I really do want to talk about teaching for a second here and what, what mm -hmm. good teaching is. Because mm -hmm. if we're going to say that good teaching is the most important variable, then we're going to decide what good teaching is. And one of the things that I, I've sort of noticed, even in some of the literature, even some of the experts say, well, you know, we have a better idea of what a good hair cutter is, you know, than we really have an agreement about what good teaching is. So for you, let's say Tom can fulfill his promise. Mm -hmm. You get the white noise away from you. Mm -hmm. You get to do, you get, you get to teach. He wants to, Tom wants to do that. He wants to let the teachers teach. What does that mean? What does that mean for you? What are you going to be able to do? I think anybody on this panel would agree the number one word is, and I learned this from my mentors, the number one word is relationships. And that means different things to perhaps to different teachers on the periphery, but the hallmark of it is I need my kids to trust me, I need to trust them. And isn't that what any relationship is? Mm -hmm. And it's also, I know my subject matter, I know my craft, I'm always open to learning, but I need to trust the people who are teaching me to be better at my craft. That trust has to keep going and going and going. And as soon as whatever point in the relationship line that trust stops, that's when I know, okay, let me do what I know how to do. You hired me, you hired mm. my colleagues, let us do what we know how to do best. And when you come into my classroom, unless, unless I want you to be, please don't just be a fly on the wall. If I want to say hello to you and have my students say hello to you, say hello back to us, be part of it, and then really integrate yourself into what's going on. But otherwise, it's my classroom. Mm -hmm. And it's my students' classroom. It's our classroom. And within the framework of an agreed-upon curriculum, let me teach. And let me embrace the spontaneous moments. Let me listen to my kids. It's, and, and let me decide when it's time for me to stop talking and then let my kids mm -hmm. be my guide every day. What you're listening to is a conversation we recorded live on stage at Watkinson School on October 1st. It's about teaching and learning. We'll have more of that conversation when we get back. Teach me to know my number of days. Hold on. I want to just bring up a few ideas. That I, I don't know anything. Of, I, well, I teach at Trinity sometimes, but I'm probably the worst teacher at Trinity. Um, I don't really know anything about teaching. So I tried, for the purposes of this, to kind of learn more about it and learn what people think about it right now, learn what people say, and I'd be interested to get some of your reactions to it. One thing that came up a lot in the literature that I read, and obviously there's no one size that's going to fit all. There's not one technique that will work for every teacher and every class. But one thing that I encountered a lot was the notion that you want students to teach each other. You often want to see, uh, one thing that seems to work is breaking students into work groups where they're sitting together, kind of working with each other. You let the record show that Tom is rocking his head. Um, and um, that, uh, I think it's Eva Moskowitz, who's somewhat controversial in New York City right now, but she says, you know, students should be talking 80% of the time in class. Teachers should be talking 20% of the time. The best teachers talk less, which I think you could say about moderators too. So, Jamie, react to that. <laughs> I was really excited and pleased with myself and the three passionate, four passionate people I'm sitting mm. up here with that the word data didn't come up at mm. all yeah. in our conversation. Mm. And that's the ugly, disgusting monster mm. that has penetrated all four walls mm. and the floor and the ceiling of my classroom mm. and my friends' and colleagues' classrooms. Mm. And 
it stinks. And a good idea is not a good idea until three people agree on it. Mm. My students haven't learned unless I can quantify it within an inch of its life. Mm. And I mean, even to the point that a, an organization that I advise on, at my school hasn't done anything great that I can share with any administrator. I, I've been told this. What can you quantify? And then we can look at it quickly. So mm. conversations. So that, that would be what, what needs to happen for teachers before they walk in the door. Okay, so once they walk in the door, mm-hmm. to not be thinking, okay, where, where, how's my going to get generate some data for this so <laughs> Tuesday will be a better day. But that, yeah, relationships also comes back to it with kids themselves. But I would have to take slight issue, not, not tremendous issue, because mm-hmm. it really, what you said about the 20 versus 80, it, it kind of appeals to a large extent to what I believe, but that's what I believe, that's what you believe. And I know that's what a body of research believes, but how disrespectful to my colleagues who are fabulous teachers, whom kids will cite as their favorite teacher, who don't adopt that model, whose mm. desks... I would rather chew glass than have the desks in my classroom in rows. But that says diddly squat about my colleagues who do keep them in rows because we're not widgets. Our kids are not widgets. So good teaching is... As I was saying to two wonderful people I had dinner with, good teaching, or they said to me, and I agreed, that it's an art, it's a craft. And so that penetration of maybe data is supposed to be synonymous with turning teaching into a science, I don't buy it, but maybe that's, that's an impediment to mm-hmm. teaching. But, but I also say good teaching it comes from teachers who were probably pretty good students in their subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, know, I imagine maybe we'll talk about that, but... Yeah. That's just as paramount as everything else, competency. Um, Ron, am I going to run into this problem all night, that if I bring up something that I, 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 I hear this particular technique constitutes good teaching, mm-hmm. um, uh, n- nothing is really going to correspond to that. that there's always going to be, that Tom's going to be rocking his head all night long uh, if I say, well, th- this works, this is a good kind of teaching. I mean, is there, is there anything that absolutely is a good kind of teaching? No, uh, <laughs> there isn't. There's an old cliche that uh, teachers can teach, that doesn't mean students are learning. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, students learn what they're interested in, what you can engage them in, and you find their interest. Let me illustrate with just a, a brief anecdote. My daughter was substituting in Barnstable High School, and she was called in one day, and the teacher had left on an emergency, so she hadn't left a plan, a lesson plan, and so on. And the principal said, just go in and, and maintain order. Mm. And so as she was walking down the hall to her classroom, she could hear the disorder. The kids were throwing things and running around, and they're 10th graders, 10th or 11th. And so she went in and, and went up to the desk, and they ignored her until she finally let out a scream, and they all turned and sat down. And it turned out she didn't have a lesson plan, but she had in her briefcase a manuscript for a book that she'd been asked to edit. And she's a writer. And so she said, uh, once she got them calmed down, she said, look, would you help me? She said, I've got this book, and it's for, written for adolescents. It's about adolescence. Uh, it's been a long time since I was in that stage. And so I wonder, if I read a little bit to you, would you mind reacting and, and so on? And so for the next 10 or 15 minutes, she read from this manuscript. Could have heard a pin drop. And then when she paused, she said, so give me a reaction. Well, they couldn't, you know, hands were waving, they mm. couldn't get it out fast enough. And for the next, for the rest of the class, the conversation just was rolling around. And finally the bell rang and the kids didn't want to leave. They gradually walked out and one little girl walked up to her afterwards and said, 
are you going to be our teacher from now on? Oh. And she said, no, I'm afraid I'm just a substitute. And she said, oh, that's too bad because this is the best class I ever had. But what did she do? Yeah. You know, she seized the opportunity. These kids were dealing with something real, mm-hmm. not something they were supposed to learn so they might use it 10 years from now. This was something that they could say something about. They could display they weren't just empty vessels. They, their opinion was valid, valued. And so it was a great experience for them. To me, that was good teaching. But there are a variety of anecdotes you could come up with here tonight, I'm sure, of different teachers doing different things. The main thing is know your audience and find a way to get them engaged in what you're saying. Go for their interests. You know, one of the tensions that I sense, Tom, uh, and, and I've even experienced it in my own limited career as a teacher, I used to teach writing. And I started out thinking, I'm going to do it the way that Ron just said. I'm going to start by inspiring them to write. They're going to want to write something. I'm going to get them to want to write something. And once I get them to want to write something, they're going to learn the stuff that they need to know in order to write. And that didn't work um, for a variety of reasons. And, and so I went back to what I sort of thought of. Is it Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid? Yeah. Like he makes you know yes. makes him yeah. like you got to scrub the thing mm-hmm. and you got to do this. And you've got to do all this stuff. You've got to build the mm-hmm. muscles up. You got to build the muscles up so that then you can do something. You mm-hmm. can put some kind of combination together. So I went back to being Mr. Miyagi. Mm-hmm. First of all, they have to learn stuff. Otherwise, they're just useless balls of impulse. I, I don't mean... <laughs> the, te- the teachers and the kids. Yeah. So, but Tom, rea- I want to have Tom and Terry both react to that a little bit. Well, yeah. We need them to be useful balls of impulse. Yeah. And that's the... You know, one of the things I like to think about is that we need to give teachers, in this notion of teacher prep, a toolbox. The only thing you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Mm. So if all I can do is cooperative learning, I'm going to put you in groups every day. And I've seen teachers do this... And you know what? The kids, okay, it's good. But in my class, when my kids came in, there used to be days where I'd try to do this. I'd be like, I know this is what good teaching is supposed to be. Cooperative learning. And my principal said, you know, I'd like to see more cooperative learning in your classroom. So I'd do it when I was being observed. And at the end of the class, one of the kids is walking out and he goes to me, Mr. Moore, can we hear some cool stories tomorrow? And I was like, that's how I pull them in. And so how do you pull them in? One of the things with writing that I always found, the first essay of the year, no matter what a kid would write, I'd go through and I'd write a page back to them about what they did that was fantastic. I mean, it could be, hey, you never went off the line. I mean, it didn't (laughs) matter, but it was, it was your eyes are dotted pristine. And it was, I need you to know that I think you're special. And boy, can you write, we're going to keep getting you better. Because that's what it is. The grade is so secondary uh-huh. to that relationship and me believing in you and me believing I can get you there. And so one of the, as I was preparing for this and learning about, one of the questions that I had was, does, do these kinds of things work across the board, across disciplines, across different disciplines? And so I ran into the work of this, you probably all know her name. Her name is Deborah Ball. She's now the dean at the University of Michigan School of Education. But she, in the early 1980s, became kind of famous for a way of teaching math. Um, I'll read from a description of her. She developed a successful approach to teaching even young children sophisticated concepts in math. Instead of relying on rote memorization or repetitive skills practice, Ball shepherded children through in-depth discussions of a single mathematical conjecture. For example, do two odd integers 
always add up to an even number. The students, steered along by their teacher, deliberated together to derive proofs for their various hypotheses. Now, in just a second, we'll talk about whether or not, you know, in all the ways that Jamie is slowly being driven crazy, uh, she would have an opportunity to do the version of that in English class. But to me, that notion of conversation about something, and particularly about something that I find is difficult as math, I feel as though I might have learned math if I had been taught that way. Yeah, yeah, you're nodding, yeah. You want to? I feel like I would have learned math in a way that, you know, the question of how, when are we ever going to use this? I think it puts teachers on the spot to immediately justify how something that's abstract will become a tool. But I think if we had learned math as a conversation and um, sort of broke apart the, the idea that in the arts or in the humanities, lots of things can be possible. But in math, there is one right, right answer and one right way to show your work, then I do think the uh, skills of reasoning, the skills of expression, and the skills of problem solving would be more finely honed in students who gave up, right? Who, who, who give up on, on mathematics. Um, I do think that the, the spending time not knowing something together is an incredibly important and valuable uh, way to spend some time in school. I'm and, good at that, and, too. Well, that's great. Yeah, yeah. But see, Tom would be saying, you're so good at not knowing stuff. That's, that's something I really value Wonderful about Wonderful job. Yeah. Well, I think with, with math, I think we forget when we go back, math used to be known as philosophy. Mm -hmm. And some of the greatest discussions I used to have in a class where I would always bring in philosophy, the thing that fascinated kids when I said, you know there's no such thing as zero. Mm -hmm. Zero is a philosophical construct. And it blew people's mind in this discussion, and that's a math discussion that we should be having. But who's going into math? Are they mathematicians? I'm going to become a math teacher because I'm a mathematician and I love the philosophy and theory of math, or I'm going into math because I'm good at math. Mm. I don't have a thousand applicants for every math job. I do for history. I was in my, my first real professional job at Johns Hopkins University before I discovered math. Hmm. And I discovered it by doing stories on scientists and working with people who use math all the time. And it wasn't something rote that they did. It was magic. I mean, they talked about math and they used math to, to deal with real life problems in ways that were just astonishing to me. I know I could divide long division even, but I had no idea what they were talking about when they first started talking. And it made me wish that I could go back to the second or third grade and decide that I wanted to learn math. But I know what would have happened. We'd have still been doing the old two and two are four, four and four are eight approach to mathematics. And, and the magic and the beauty of mathematics is just absent in most classrooms for the first eight years of a kid's life. I'm going to ask you all, I'm, Tom, I'm going to go down to you. So as you're drifting off to sleep at night and suddenly the ghost of Thomas Jefferson uh, appears uh, at the foot of your bed and says, Tom, answer that question. You know, what, what, what would be meaningful? I mean, imagine there's no U.S. Department of Education, no State Department of Education, no West Hartford Board of Education, no philanthropists running around uh, trying to, to fix education. Uh, you're not answerable <laughs> to anybody else. You just want to be able to point to a student and say, yeah, that's the student I wanted popping out of the, the, the far end uh, of the West Hartford school system. What does that look like? I want to help create more interesting people. Mm -hmm. I, I, want, I, I don't want you 
to know what the most important thing is. I want you to know so many things that you have a base that you're never going to be lost. And the biggest thing, if I'm saying one tangible thing everybody has to do, you have to be able to write a letter to, con to your congressperson mm -hmm. to advocate mm -hmm. for yourself and not need a lawyer to do it. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to be a citizen and demand things mm -hmm. for yourself and demand what's right. That's, mm -hmm. That's terrific. Is that enough, Ron? Is that, is that enough to ask of an education system? In order for our basic premise to hold that the teacher is the most important element, we have to make sure the teachers come with a lot. You know, mm -hmm. They have to. We lose half the teachers who enter the field right. within the first five years, and one mm -hmm. of the reasons is because they come in and they're not quite sure what to do. Mm -hmm. And control is always the big, you know, the first big thing. How do we get them controlled so we can really teach them? And I think it's it's not just the pre-service education. No. It's it's what I think what happens to to teachers in schools is. Um, I don't know of another profession where adults have less control and less say over how they spend their time. Um, and if other professions were managed in the ways that teachers are managed in terms of the dedication of their resources, the dedication of their energy and, and creativity, I'm not sure other professions would tolerate it as well. I know that when that I believe that teachers, when given the resources of time and space to talk to each other, they know what their students need. They, and they will bring their, every one of us has things about our teaching that we hope no one will find out. <laughs> right? Every single one of us. And, and we know what they are, and sometimes so do the kids. But if teachers don't get to work together in a true context of a professional community of learners, then it's just um, coming in every day and that learning doesn't grow and we don't become better at our craft if we can't um, make some decisions about what we talk about together. We're going to take a little break right now. You're listening to a conversation that we recorded live on stage on October 1st at Watkinson School. We'll have the rest of that conversation when we return. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone I hope you're enjoying today's show. And if you are, could you go to the U.S. Department of Education website and fill out Survey 77A in the National Center for Education Statistics section of the site? Don't make the mistake of filling out Form WW25 in the National Assessment of Educational Progress section. <laughs> it kills me how many people can't tell the two apart. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me with a heroic intervention from Larry and Brendan at Event Resources. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Nia Tyler is our intern and appeared in the intro. Katie Tularski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Gabe Kaplan. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of the Faith Middleton Show staff's old report cards, visit our website, WNPR.org. Tomorrow, our long-awaited show about poop and sewage, your perfect lunchtime listening companion. And now... Back to Colin. I feel like I have to tweak you guys about one thing, or I'm probably bringing up something that drives you crazy. So I got really interested in this uh, Deborah Ball and the way that she teaches math. Uh, and, um, and I just, you know, I, I went to her website and, and started reading some of the ideas that she has 
uh, about teaching. And what I discovered, um, much to my distress, is that um, it was full of terms like high leverage practices. And this is a great teacher. This is Deborah Ball. She's, she's the one who did math the way we could all learn math. So high leverage practices. And so then I decided to read what one of those was. There were like 20 of them. Making content explicit through explanation, modeling, representations, and examples. Making content explicit is essential to providing all students with access to fundamental ideas and practices in a given subject. Effective efforts to do this attend both to the integrity of the subject and to the students' likely interpretations of it. They include strategically choosing and using representations and examples to build understanding and remediate misconceptions using language carefully which, by the way, this is not doing, highlighting core, ideas. <laughs> yeah. highlighting core ideas while sidelining potentially distracting ones and making one's own thinking visible while modeling and demonstrating. So, and, and I think probably most of the people on the panel would say this isn't even as bad as it can get. But this I, is a, this I is love a, that. Yeah. That makes complete sense. And I think we have to take the time to pay attention to that text and analyze it and make meaning of it. Well, I just translated it to explain things in a way that incorporates the way your kids think and talk without shortchanging the subject matter. Use examples. If the kids wow. still don't get it, come up with better examples. Help the kids separate yes. <laughs> Help the kids go. separate ideas into ones that matter and ones that don't. Show them how you would think through a particular problem. That's what's in that paragraph, but why can't it be said that way? Amen. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, yes. And I love it no less. Yeah. I consider myself reasonably intelligent, <laughs> and I read education journals, and I'm like, can't they just say, what's the kid supposed to know? How do I know they know it? What do I do when they don't get it? Because yeah. that's what it's coming down to. <laughs> no, or do. Because if we don't have a research base, yeah. then we can't... It's so weird. The research base guides practice, and practice then informs the research base. So I actually don't have any problem with that, provided we take the time to make meaning of it and, and, and not do away with academic writing. But if we're going to translate it, we need that takes time. Her audience I, I think too there. often research base guides administrators, and it doesn't really guide teachers. Because we're saying this is what you have to do, and we're not saying why or how or what it means. Uh, Lydia's got a mic there. I see a question down front here. Or no, Lydia, you got one up there. Okay, go ahead. My first confession is that I'm a data person, so I hope you're not going to mind that. <laughs> a teacher usually knows what they want to teach, but the way to do what's called a controlled experiment is ask the kid the question, then teach them, then ask them a similar question again. And I'm wondering, does that ever happen? I mean, even if I'm yeah. thinking of math because it's the easiest to judge, do they ever like to do a pretest before they teach the kids to see it's what they know? It's happening more and more. It's yeah. more okay. of a model. Because I'm saying now. that would be, you know, the teacher deciding what they want, you know, showing that they've learned what they wanted to teach. Because that way, if you come with a kid who didn't have breakfast, parents would help them with homework, whatever, you at least know what progress you made from what you came from. And I'm realizing that the national tests don't do that. They don't compare just September to June. That's part of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. But to your specific question, I think this is what you're asking about. There's a researcher named Bjork, not the singer, uh, <laughs> a researcher named Bjork who's discovered, who's doing some real classroom work, discovering that when students are given a test very early in the term, first or second week, that they're going to bomb on because they haven't been taught anything yet. They, they learn measurably better afterwards because they know what a question looks like. They, they know a little bit more about the vocabulary of the class, the structure of knowledge that's going to be imparted in the class. Something about the act of taking a test and, and not knowing the answers 
is either a motivator or a way of beginning to conceptualize what the material is. Now I'm starting to sound like one of these jargon users. All right, so but yeah. In, but but in, when yeah. your son was in my class, yeah. the one time I never spoke <laughs> was during test reviews, mm -hmm. review sessions for tests, because I'd sit back, the kids would come in, and I'd say, go ahead, write the test. And they'd sit there and be able to write what the test was the next day. Because if, if you're doing it properly, they know what was really important. Mm -hmm. And that kind of byplay, that's when you get into that, what are they supposed to know? And I'd watch and I'd be like, okay, well, I can't ask that question because they clearly don't know it's important. I should say, my son turns 25 today, and here I am, I'm with you. Uh, I know. He's, he's home writing a letter to his congressman uh, <laughs> about that, actually. But, but, uh, so it worked. You're a success. So yeah, you've got the microphone, so you have a lot of power right now. You know, we keep talking around education, around teachers, but what about students? How do we incorporate the voice and the choice of students into what we do? You know, we're looking at a world where, you know, the things that we do today, the computers we use, the technology we use, everything that goes on around us hadn't even been conceived when I was in high school 375 years ago. So how do we allow for voice and choice in, in students to face a completely uncertain future with technologies that haven't been dreamed of yet. You know, what is it that we can do with our education system that allows the ability to free students to become what we need them to be so they can take care of us when we get old? <laughs> <laughs> the myth that, that we're preparing kids for their career and their job, I mean, the scariest thing about it is the kids we have, their jobs don't exist yet. They haven't been invented. So that's why maybe I'm just being a wuss by saying I'll just prepare them to be good people. Mm -hmm. You know, with skill sets and with knowledge, but we don't know what the jobs are. That's, that's the scary thing. But Terry, that kind of comes back to your, uh, form, your alumnus uh, from, uh, from England, your alumna from England. Um, and, and is that a good enough answer? Like, we don't know what the jobs are gonna be. We can't prepare you for those things. Uh, there are a number of people <laughs> writing checks to your school. Who uh, Do they want a better answer than that? Uh. I think everybody wants a better answer to that, yeah. re regardless of the school that their, that their ch child goes to. Learning how to use your mind well never goes out of style. I, I, and I fully uh, agree that we may not know the jobs that our students will create for themselves in the world that they will make. But I know that the skill of thinking critically and the skill of expressing a thought that began as a lack of clarity or as a lot of confusion that has been worked and honed and carefully critiqued and been in a, a cycle of revision, that's the thinking. The innovators of our world are in our classrooms with us mm -hmm. and we're guiding them and if we don't know how to ask big questions and give kids space to grapple, then they won't know what their jobs will be. I'm far less concerned about that. And, and mm -hmm. I am spending a lot more time uh, lately being very concerned about the future. But at the same time, I believe that the skills of thinking clearly, knowing, knowing oneself, being able to use words, use language, use symbols, use reasoning, be able to say, 
that's good information and that is information that I suspect. Mm -hmm. No school is preparing kids. No child graduates high school knowing everything they need to know in college and no college graduate leaves a university knowing everything that they need to know to do everything. It's a it's a process, but I think building skill is our essential task. And, and to your point, person who formerly had the microphone, remember the story that I told at the beginning of this, that I was under the impression that my brain didn't work in a conversation with, with Sir, Sir Tom Stoppard because this stupid thing, this oh. iPad that I'm holding here, which didn't exist know, four years ago, because it didn't work. I felt unhorsed at least momentarily. And the, the lesson that I learned on that occasion was that it didn't really reside in here. In fact, I was better off. So, I mean, sometimes these technologies are illusions. I mean, you have to learn them because they're there, but they're not everything anyway. I, I'd just like to end by, first of all, thanking this incredible panel. How about a big round of applause for them? And, and, and to, to me, one of the themes that emerges just preparing for this and listening to them, too, is, I mean, we're all on, still ideally on this journey. I, I, I'll come back to Sir Tom Stoppard. You know, his play, the reason I was talking to him, his play Arcadia is about to play down at the Yale Rep. And this is a play, it's a funny, sexy, touching, emotional play. It's also about, I mean, I, I, I pulled out, it's about... Thermodynamics, computer algorithms, fractals, population dynamics, chaos theory, determinism, romanticism, classicism, particularly in landscape architecture. To understand this play, to appreciate this play, you, you have to be a learner. You know, to be fully moved and engaged by it, you have to be a learner. And, I, you know, and it's an amazing play. And it, it makes me, because I, I, Terry's background is so much in the arts, too, I wish we talked more about the arts, but there's no way to segregate all this. I mean, the thing that I, I learn again and again is that the structure of knowledge is, is universal. I mean, we're just constantly trying to, to, to enlarge ourselves so that we begin to uh, approach some of its boundaries, but we just never stop learning. Um, and, and so, you know, all of these wonderful educators here, I think what they're doing, teachers, not educators, teachers, I think what they're doing ideally is putting people out there in the world who can go see Arcadia, you know, and want to know more, <laughs> and, and, and want to get it even more, and want to go do the reading after that. But thank you for coming tonight. Thank you, guys. So be true to your school. Miss Wolf, is this the test to test us for the test to see if we're ready for the test? No, it's the exam to test you for the test to see if you're ready for the exam. But what's the difference? Just take the quiz!